Hello and welcome to Cannabis Grand Rounds, a production by physicians with advanced degrees in cannabis medicine. Your hosts, Dr. Lee Van Oker, Dr. Les Matthews, and Dr. Hal Altman, will offer unbiased medical cannabis education for healthcare providers and the motivated public. Our content is selected with the objective to fully explore cannabis as science and medicine and pledges to reflect current cannabis knowledge with no hidden agenda nor sponsorships. My name is Les Matthews and I want to welcome our audience back to Cannabis Grand Rounds. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion on the history of cannabis and important events that took place historically that have impacted the position of cannabis in our society today. Joining me are Dr. Hal Altman and Dr. Lee Van Oker, both physicians with master's degrees in medical cannabis. And it's a pleasure now to have this conversation continue on the history of cannabis. Hal and Lee, the 1970s were an important time frame for cannabis and some of the legal precedents that exist today. And it's fair to say, I think, that cannabis made a transition from being an accepted and oftentimes valued uh, medicinal uh, agent to one that was vilified and moved to almost illegal status. Can you explain uh, how that transition occurred and what the 70s implied? Les, uh, before we get to that, I, I think it's important for uh, listeners that maybe missed our last podcast to to summarize a little bit how we got to um, to the latter stages of the 20th century. There are uh, two vilifying characters in this story, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the first is Harry Anslinger, uh, who was the czar of Prohibition. Uh, and when Prohibition disappeared and he needed a new platform, he moved over and uh, became the, the head of the new Narcotics Bureau. And uh, Anslinger was a racist and a xenophobe and lots of other things and uh, had it out quite quite honestly, for uh, minorities, particularly uh, Mexicans and blacks. And so um, he and uh, employed a, a number of others, uh, like uh, Mr. Hurst, the um, newspaper magnate, to, again, vilify marijuana, uh, to attach it to those minorities that we talked about, and did his best uh, to try to turn public sentiment against cannabis and now uh, his pejorative term, marijuana. So that that kind of gets us into, I, I guess, the 30s or so, Lee? Yeah, no, it's true. And you know how, unless there was also a, quite a dichotomy, even among policymakers in the government then. And um, as you said, Anslinger really was attaching it to crimes, saying that it w- caused criminal activity. And what's interesting is Fiorella LaGuardia, the mayor of New York created a report that kind of refuted it. In in his report that he did probably in the 40s, like 1944, he found that marijuana really wasn't that addictive. It was not motivated in major crimes. It was not that common among children. And it was kind of rebuking that. So that sort of pushed Anslinger to really push forward 
and try and criminalize it even further. And in fact, uh, there was something called the Porter Act, which directed the Surgeon General to um, start to think about drug addiction. And uh, it wasn't enough for Anslinger criminalization having a drug addiction and revenue-based regulatory system that part of the Porter Act did wasn't enough. He really wanted to push criminalization. And then in 51, he got helped get the passage of the Bog Act. And that act actually created and set mandatory minimum prison sentences uh, for drug violators. And it sort of took it out of the hand of judges. And that was the stage that was kind of set in the 50s. Um, Now, also, Hal, when we think about it, what was then happening, that was towards the end of the 50s. And uh, I know we've discussed in the past the idea of this counterculture that was happening in the 60s leading into the 70s. And I think The transition was suddenly it was appearing on college campuses and this idea of locking up middle class college youth that were considered America's brightest on the college campuses for minor possessions sort of became unpalatable at that time. And um, Kennedy had an advisory committee after his assassination. Johnson also, with a lot of foresight, saw the utility in criminalizing users, right? I mean, he actually said, um, our continued insistence on treating drug addicts once apprehended as criminals is neither humane nor effective, and it hasn't curtailed addiction nor preventive crime, which is kind of prophetic because to this day, I mean, we've done this straight through to the 90s. But what was interesting is he had enough foresight to move some of the drug policies away from law enforcement at that time and put it into the new health, education, and welfare committees. So I think that was interesting, but it it did lead up, uh, Hal, as I know you're going to talk about, to what was going on in the 70s. And I I think we've discussed before, it still was that counterculture once uh, Nixon became president that he just couldn't stand related to cannabis or marijuana, as they called it then. Well, what's interesting about all of this, as far as I'm concerned, is you can't look at the history of cannabis without understanding the history of what was going on in the country and in the culture. So if you look at the 50s and the the so-called beatniks, um, the 60s were uh, the the hippie culture, the anti-war sentiments that the counterculture adopted. And marijuana became synonymous, use of marijuana became synonymous with war protests leading up to Nixon's election in 68. And I mentioned earlier that there were two sort of uh, evil characters in this story in the 20th century. Harry Anslinger was the first and Nixon was the second. And I think Nixon had some of the same racist, xenophobic, you can't trust others philosophy that Anslinger had. Um, And we referenced a book in our last podcast by John Hudak, which is called Marijuana, A Short Story. I would certainly recommend that for anybody that's interested in a deeper dive. But a quote from that I think really puts it well. If Harry Anslinger was a foot soldier in the fight 
against drugs. Richard Nixon was America's first drug warrior. Uh, and I think that's exactly how uh, Nixon approached all of this. And so coincident with what was going on in the United States, drugs and particularly marijuana and its uh, supposed connection uh, with uh, gateway drugs and leading to narcotics got the attention of the world. And the United Nations actually in the early 60s uh, started to work on a proposal and came up with a schedule of drugs that they felt were uh, dangerous and uh, should be excluded from usage. And the UN came up with uh, a five-schedule drug approach, and Nixon uh, in 1970, in, in advocating for and helping to pass the Controlled Substance Act, adopted a a similar approach to medications. So there were five schedules, schedule one through five. Schedule one was the most regulated, schedule five was the least. And to to be included in a schedule one drug, it had to have a high potential for abuse or addiction. It had to have no currently indicated medical use and there had to be a lack of a safety profile, uh, even under medical direction. With those three definers for uh, Schedule 1, unbelievably, cannabis was included, along with street drugs like heroin, uh, LSD, and methamphetamine. It is that Controlled Substance Act of 1970 uh, that we continue to live with, and it effectively shuts down the possibility of any kind of clinical research on a Schedule One drug. Yeah, it's terrible. And what's interesting is just, you know, the policymakers ignoring a lot of the information, which we've even seen somewhat today, right? So Nixon went to his friend Schaefer to create the Schaefer Commission to talk about the dangers of marijuana. And just like the LaGuardia report, it infuriated the government because they were committed to prohibition and criminalization. And the Schaefer report said, uh, just like the LaGuardia report, it really wasn't attached to a lot of criminal activity. Um, there were a lot of false assumptions about it, but Nixon chose to then ignore that report. And I, I think that that really shows, even among policymakers in the government, there was this issue of ignoring some of the facts, burying some of the information and uh, just doing what's political, which we can see today almost (laughs) in politics and science. So it's an interesting parallel, but it really did create the problems, as you said, Hal, related to research. And it was very prophetic that way back with the Marijuana Tax Act that we talked about that wasn't so much prohibition, but was a taxation on it, that the AMA came out against it and feared that it would hamper research and use in the future. And that was back in the 30s. So it's really a sad state of affairs for what's going on even today. But so, Howland Lee, to, to be clear, the Controlled Substance Act was passed by Congress and signed by Nixon and became the law of the land in 1970. Federally, right? that's so. 
Yeah, for the federal government, that's so. And and that's the uh, shadow, if you will, that cannabis still resides under today. Um, so in mo- many decades uh, have passed, obviously, since that became law, and yet cannabis is unchanged in its regulated status. That, that is true less until... Uh 2018, when there was a farm bill that was passed uh, by the Congress that acknowledged the separation between cannabis and hemp. Hemp, we'll get into this in, in future podcasts, but hemp and cannabis are basically siblings. And the major difference between the two is the content of THC, with hemp having less than 0.3% and THC having greater than 0.3%. There was a recognition of the lack of abuse potential for hemp CBD products. And in 2018, they were separated, conceivably allowing um, the hemp uh, growers to legally grow and process hemp. We still have hoops that we have to jump through in terms of studying CBD uh, because it's been referenced back to the um, FDA. But you know what's interesting and what, again, shows how the the government, even uh, the federal government, um, with the scheduling of class drugs, still uh, the policy is just all over the place, is that Marinol, which is a completely synthetic product of THC, that was developed in a lab um, so that physicians could use it. It, it. It's a little more regular than using an herbal medicine, probably back in the 80s, I believe. Maybe, yeah, Marinol is THC. It's the same exact, maybe it's a slightly different isomer of it, but Marinol is a Schedule Three. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all that a pharma drug that's synthetic that would be a Schedule Three that is pure THC. So if you go back to the definition of a Schedule One drug, highly addictive, we will discuss this in the future, but the addiction, uh, the, the substance abuse potential for cannabis is certainly less than many drugs that are used today commonly, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, no accepted medical use. Um, you just explained Lee, that we, we've been using Marinol now for uh, almost uh, 25 years and can't be used safely under medical direction. We've got hundreds, if not thousands, of cannabis clinical trials going on now across the world, which refutes that claim. So I think one of the things that, that has really lit a fire under all three of us is the need to share the truth concerning cannabis as a potential medicine uh, and to get the word out that this uh, substance needs to be rescheduled so that we can do the clinical trials and establish what works for what. So we have a situation where uh, cannabis remains Schedule One. As a result, as, as we've discussed, it severely limits the ability to do cannabis research it also severely limits the ability of healthcare systems receiving federal funding for anything from Medicare to NIH grants and so on to participate in the prescribing or recommendation of cannabis because of fears that it would jeopardize federal funding. So there are far-reaching ramifications. And just to wrap this up, you very uh, correctly pointed out, Lee, that cannabis remains 
illegal at the federal level, and yet we know now that there are 37 states in the District of Columbia that have legalized it. And certainly when I began my journey in the education of cannabis, that did not compute. It made no sense to me that it was possible to be illegal at the federal level and legal at the state level. And it's one of the very interesting aspects of where cannabis resides from a legal standpoint in our culture today. And we'll certainly delve into that in greater detail in future podcasts. And I think the audience will find it very interesting. But this has been a great discussion about the history of cannabis leading us to where we still find ourselves today in its very restricted uh, status at the federal level. So thank you all. We appreciate uh, your participation and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. All information, material, and content on this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional and or medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment by a qualified physician or healthcare provider. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. Cannabis Grand Rounds LLC does not offer personal health or medical advice. If you have a medical emergency, call your doctor or call 911 immediately.